Whenever God is at work, there will be resistance. Whenever God is at work, there will be resistance. This has been seen uh, throughout history when you look at great works of God revivals. This was seen in the Welsh revival in 1904. This was seen in the Korean and Chinese revival just a few years after that. This was also seen in the revival in New England a couple hundred years before that under the ministry of a number of people, but especially Jonathan Edwards, who was a a leader and defender of the work of revival that was going on, a faithful preacher of the gospel, a faithful pastor. It was an incredible thing. Whole towns were being changed as people uh, believed the gospel, saw their need for Christ, saw their sinfulness, repented, and the towns were changed as, as behavior changed because people were being affected by, by God's Spirit. But throughout New England, there were a number of leading ministers, people with a pulpit, people with influence, who opposed the work, who said it was fanaticism, who said it's a passing thing, it won't, it won't last. And so Jonathan Edwards did a lot to defend the, the truthfulness and the rightness of the revivals. And you know, for example, some of the leading ministers would would look to some instances of extreme emotion where people were, were crying loudly or crying out in, in agony, really, as they were under conviction of sin. And so Jonathan Edwards defended this. He, the opponents would say, well, that can't be a work of God. All that emotion, that can't be a work of God. And Edwards just you know, went step by step through the Bible showing, look, uh, expressions of emotion are a very normal thing when God is at work. And so he set out to defend it. And especially he wanted to show that this opposition to a genuine work of God is dangerous. And in fact, Edwards was proved right because the the work didn't last very long. There was so much social pressure, and there were certainly lots of reasons why the work didn't continue, but opposition to the work of God, Edwards said, is dangerous, and especially when it's definitely God at work. But the point is, whenever God is truly at work, there is resistance. So we're continuing our study of the book of Ezra. I would uh, call you to go ahead and turn there with me, Ezra chapter 4. If, uh, at this point, if you're still unfamiliar how to get there, don't forget about the table of contents. You can use that to find the page number. But Ezra chapter 4 is our focus this morning. Last week in Ezra 3, where we left off, the temple was being rebuilt. It had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar about 70 years before, and now the returned exiles, uh, we ended off last week, they had just laid the foundation, rebuilding the house of God, that, that physical symbol of God's presence on earth, that place where the people of God could go and sacrifice animals according to God's word and the worship that he required. It was all about obedience. They were rebuilding the temple uh, out of obedience. Deuteronomy 12, the Lord had said to the, the, the Exodus generation, Turn to the place the Lord your God chooses from all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling and go there. You are to bring there your burnt offerings and sacrifices to sacrifice them there. So they were being obedient to God, but as one scholar says, 
on this passage that we're looking at today, whenever God initiates a spiritual work, it follows that there will be resistance. And that's what we find in chapter 4 this morning. Resistance to the work of God. The opponents of God reject the people of God as they seek to be obedient. Now, we're going to read the passage here in just a second, but just from the outset, you know, keep in mind, this is not outdated history. In one sense, you would look at this and think, well, what do I really care about a building that doesn't even exist anymore and people that I can't even pronounce their names? What is this? What does this have to do with me? But again, that principle that I've already begun to to point out, every fresh work of God will meet with resistance. And that is true in your life. We'll see it true here this morning of the people of God in Ezra's day, but it's true in your life too. Every fresh work of God in your life will meet with resistance. And if you are someone who wants God to work in your life? I mean, do you want that this morning? Do you want to grow? Do you want to see God do something in your life? And I don't care at what point in your life you're at, whether you're a new Christian, a young Christian, a, a, a seasoned saint, I don't care what time of your life it is. If you want to see God do something new in your life, that's a good thing. But just know, it will be met with opposition. With resistance. Let's look at this story together, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that their returned exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the family heads and said to them, Let us build with you, for we also worship your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of King Esarhaddon of Syria brought us here. But... Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the other heads of Israel's families answered them, You may have no part with us in building a house for our God, since we alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people who were already in the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They also bribed officials to act against them to frustrate their plans throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. And then verse 6. Verse 6 is a, a it skips ahead in time about 70 years. So listen right there. At the beginning of the reign of Ahasuerus, the people who were already in the land wrote an accusation against the residents of Judah and Jerusalem. And then verse 7 skips ahead about another 20 years. During the time of King Artaxerxes of Persia, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabil, and the rest of his colleagues wrote to King Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the chief deputy, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter to King Artaxerxes concerning Jerusalem as follows. From Rehum, the chief deputy, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues, the judges and magistrates from Tripolis, Persia, Erech, Babylon, Susa, that is the people of Elam, and the rest of the peoples whom the great and illustrious Ashurbanipal deported and settled in the cities of Samaria in the region west of the Euphrates River. Talk about a long greeting. This is the text of the letter they sent to him. To King Artaxerxes from your servants, the men from the region west of the Euphrates River. Verse 12. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came from you have returned to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and evil city, finishing its walls and repairing its foundations. 
Let it now be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and its walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, duty, or land tax, and the royal revenue will suffer. Since we have taken an oath of loyalty to the king, and it is not right for us to witness his dishonor, we have sent to inform the king that a search should be made in your father's record books. In these record books you will discover and verify that the city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces. There have been revolts in it since ancient times. That is why this city was destroyed. We advise the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are finished, you will not have any possession west of the Euphrates. Then the king's reply, verse 17. The king sent a reply to his chief deputy, Rehum, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues living in Samaria and elsewhere in the region west of the Euphrates River. Greetings. The letter you sent us has been translated and read in my presence. I issued a decree and a search was conducted. It was discovered that this city has had uprisings against kings since ancient times. and There have been rebellions and revolts in it. Powerful kings have also ruled over Jerusalem and exercised authority over the whole region west of the Euphrates River, and tribute, duty, and land tax were paid to them. Therefore, issue an order for these men to stop, so that this city will not be rebuilt until a further decree has been pronounced by me. See that you not neglect this matter. Otherwise, the damage will increase and the royal interests will suffer. Verse 23. As soon as the text of King Artaxerxes' letter was read to Rehum, Shimshai the scribe, and their colleagues, they immediately went to the Jews in Jerusalem and forcibly stopped them. Now the construction of God's house in Jerusalem had stopped and remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. Every fresh work of God will meet with resistance. And my hope for you this morning is that you will not give in to that resistance, but that you will trust God and press on in faith and see him do a new work in your life. So I want us to think about, by God's grace, how we can resist, how we cannot give in to these things. Number one, don't give in to worldly thinking. Don't give in to worldly thinking. This is from verses 1 through 3. So the people that we meet here are the Samaritans. As a, uh, someone who's familiar with the New Testament, you'll recognize Samaritans as those who, you know, the Jews didn't really have a great relationship with them, to say the least. John says in John verse, chapter 4, verse 9, uh, this is the woman of Samaria talking to Jesus. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So that's in Jesus' day, but back here in the, the 500s B.C. that we're reading about, these people had been brought to the land during the, the time when the kings of Assyria had conquered the northern tribes of Israel. And the Assyrians had a different policy than the Persians. See, the Persians sent these Jews back to the land. Their policy was, let's keep the people happy. Whereas the Assyrians' policy was, well, when we conquer somebody, kick them out of there, send them into exile, and we'll send other people to live in their land. Well, that's who the Samaritans are. You can read more about this in 2 Kings 17. That's where it says the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon and settled them in the place, in the place of the Israelites in the cities of Samaria. So, these people were not... 
the people of God. They had been brought into the land of uh, the northern kingdom of Israel before the, the Jews that we're studying here. And what they did is they engaged in idolatry. Worship of false gods. Because that was all those people knew. 2 Kings 17.25 says, When they first lived there, they did not fear the Lord. So the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. The Lord immediately judged them for worshiping false gods. And the king of Assyria, and again, this is a couple hundred years before what we're studying. The king of Assyria thought, well, this is a problem. And what he did is he sent back one of the Levitical priests. Levitical priests, how to worship God rightly. So when you understand some of that background, it's kind of startling uh, when... So they say in verse 2 of Ezra 4, let us build with you. Why? For we also worship your God and have been sacrificing to him. Oh, okay, well, they've been been worshiping God just like the, the Jews are doing. But then look at what Zerubbabel and the other leaders say in verse 3. You may have no part with us in building a house for our God. Since we alone will build it for the Lord. What's, what's going on there? You know, that sounds foolish. For one thing, it sounds kind of snooty, you know. You have no part with us. Or maybe even worse, it, it, it could sound racist. You know, you're not pure like we are. Or it could also just sound, you know, foolish. Like, they're offering to help you. And you're saying, no, we don't need any help, which is like the story of my life. Like the time that my wife went and bought a new dresser. And she bought it from a a place that was going out of business that day. Like they were closing that day. If you bought something, you get it that day or you don't get it. So she comes home and she tells me, hey, I got this dresser. And I think, oh, well, I'll just go rent a U-Haul and a dolly and I'll bring it home. By myself. Well, somehow I did manage to do that, but it, it was, if, if someone had just been following me with a video the whole time, it, it would have, I mean, to my shame, it, it was foolish. I just, all I needed to do was just call somebody, hey, can you come help me get this dresser? No, I can do this myself. No, it, it's, not, it's not that either. Because there's another aspect of these Samaritans. Because even though back in that, when they first came to the land, the, the king of Assyria sent them a, a priest to help them worship God rightly, what they did is they worshiped God rightly a little bit. But listen to what 2 Kings verse 20, seventeen twenty nine says. The people of each nation were still making their own gods in the cities where they lived and putting them in the shrines of the high places that the people of Samaria had made. Verse 33 of 2 Kings 17, they feared the Lord, but they also worshipped their own gods. That's what is called syncretism, where you combine elements of one religion with another and you make something new. So see, that's what Zerubbabel and the other leaders understand. If they let these Samaritans join with them, they are opening themselves up to false worship. 
So this isn't a racial thing. This isn't a foolish, blockheaded, we don't need your help thing. This is a concern for worshiping God according to his word. And listen, remember, these returned exiles, they know all about that. They've spent their whole life in Babylon because their ancestors did not worship God according to his word. And they don't want to make that same mistake. They're seeking to be obedient. And so they say, no. Worshiping God according to his word is what's at stake in these first few verses. But, but let's, let's not kid ourselves. This is, this is hard. Worshiping God according to his word, precisely as God intends to be worshipped, is not easy. And it's hard for us to understand sometimes, too. But let me just give you a, just a, a kind of slightly silly analogy. But if God says, worship me this way, think of me this way, It's kind of like the way that we teach children, at least in the South we do this, we teach children to say, yes ma'am and no ma'am. Yes sir and no sir. Right? Can I get an amen? Right? We do that because we're indicating to children, you, you need to speak to adults with respect. We're trying to teach them that this person you're speaking to is worthy of respect and so here's how you approach them. Well, that's, that's a little bit of a picture of what, when God tells us, you approach me in this way, the way that I require, it's because of who he is. Because he is holy. Because he alone is God and he will not share his glory. And that's what's going on here. And, and, and worldly thinking, worldly thinking would tell us to compromise. A study was done recently, a poll was done by Lifeway Research and Ligonier Ministries. And they interviewed people and they said, they asked them if they agree or disagree with this statement. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. Let me read it again. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. And 60% of Americans agreed with that. 60% of Americans said that religious belief is a matter of opinion. There's, there's no objective truth here. And I trust you can see that as Christians, when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Well, it's either Jesus is right or the 60% of Americans are right. And I'm going to go with Jesus every time. That's how God tells us to approach him, through Jesus alone. And we, we, look, if, if six out of ten people that you interact with every day think that you're nuts for believing that there's an objective truth, there's a pressure, right? Do you, I see some nods. You feel that pressure to give in and just say, oh, it's all right. It doesn't matter what you believe. It's just a matter of personal opinion. Well, listen, that's the same kind of thinking that discourages us from in our own lives, seeking the fresh work of God, but it also discourages us from, from looking at our unbelieving friends as bound for hell unless they trust in Jesus. Because then it's just, well, their opinion is that Jesus is not the way, and that's fine, it doesn't matter. It's a dangerous way of thinking. It's, it's worldly, and we have to resist that by God's grace. We need to follow the example that we see of Zerubbabel and Jeshua of resisting this false thinking. 
second thing we need to see here. We've seen the need to resist uh, false thinking. We also don't give in to powerful opposition. See, that first point was about just the the way of thinking that's common in the world. But this is about actual opposition. Don't give in to powerful opposition. That's what we see in verses 4 and 5. Because these Samaritans, if we thought for a second that they might be genuine about wanting to worship God alongside the Jews, well, their true colors show here in verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, we find them discouraging the people. Look at verse 4. Then the people who were already in the land, the Samaritans, discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. Made them afraid to be obedient to God. Made them afraid to, to do the spiritual work that God had initiated in them. Now, there are practical reasons for this. I mean, th- put, put yourself in their shoes. You're trying to get reestablished in the land, and here you are seeking to be obedient to God, and you're rebuilding the temple. That's a lot of work. It's expensive. We learned last week about how they were getting the cedar trees from Lebanon. Well, that was pretty far away, so there was a, there was a supply chain. Well, that supply chain is vulnerable to attack, to robbery. I mean, there's, there's a lot of pressure, external pressure that the people are feeling. And so all it would take is these Samaritans just saying a few things here and there. You know, hey, boy, I've heard there's been some attacks, uh, you know, on the supply line. Or, or boy, sure is expensive to, to rebuild this temple. Are you sure you want to do that? And what's the result? It says it discouraged them. And the end of verse 4, they were afraid to build. Not only the Samaritans, but they even, they even kind of went above their own heads in verse 5, where it says that they bribed officials to act against them. It, it literally is translated counselors to frustrate their counsel. In other words... The word they had from God, God's counsel, God's will, it was being undermined by these these counselors, these officials. They were being pressured to do something other than be obedient to God. The people had this desire to obey God. They wanted to do this work, but they were being discouraged. And the result is that their plans were frustrated, verse 5 says, throughout the reign of King Cyrus, and for years into the King Darius. Counselors to frustrate their counsel, those trying to keep them from God's will to obey their will. So I just come back to this idea of, do, do you have a desire for God to do a work in your life? Do you want to grow? Do you want to be more loving, more helpful, more others-centered, more God-glorifying. Is that something that you want deep down? You want to see it in your own life. You want to see it in your family. You want to see it at your job. As you try to be faithful in your job, you want to see it in your church and in your neighborhood and in this country. You want to see God do a new work. You want to see his hand. It will meet with opposition. 
I mean, it, look, it's, praise God that you even want that at all. You know, that comes from God's spirit. That's awesome. If you want to, to grow, that's a gift of God. But again, it's going to meet with opposition. And maybe this morning you came here and you are coming off a week where all week long you just felt that opposition. You know, teenagers at, at, at school this week, you, you wanted to live for Christ. You wanted to, to be faithful as a student. You wanted to, to reach out to your friends with the gospel. But every attempt you made was frustrated. And you're like, well, forget about it. It was just too hard. It will meet with resistance when God does a fresh work. But we must not give in. The world, the flesh, and the devil will oppose us. You know, the world brings us that pressure from outside. Our flesh gives that, that you know, the, the path of least resistance from inside. And Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's constant. Don't give in. Confess your weakness to God. Tell him, Lord, I want to grow. I want to to grow in my knowledge of Christ and my love for Christ. I want to be more like Christ. But I confess that I am weak. Be like Paul in 2 Corinthians 1. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death So that, and he gives God's purpose in it, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So look, if those forces of opposition feel powerful, well, God raised Jesus from the dead. So there, take that. That's the power at work in you and the power that's available to you. Now, if you're here this morning and you hear me talk about this desire to grow, this desire to be more like Jesus, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, it doesn't really matter to me. I could go either way. If, if that's you and, and you call yourself a Christian, I just want to warn you because it's normal for Christians to grow. And if you aren't seeking growth, if you don't really care about it very much, then I would encourage you to examine your heart. Because you, you may be deceiving yourself. If you have no desire to grow, if it's not that interesting to you, listen, Jesus said in Matthew seven sixteen, you will know a tree by its fruit. And so I would encourage you this morning to repent of your, your laziness and your lethargy and and seek God's forgiveness in Christ. He will receive you. He will forgive you. And he will open your eyes to see the, the, the path of life. The path of growth in Christ's likeness. Third thing we must not give in to. Don't give in to feelings of marginalization. Of isolation. Verses 6 through 16. Don't, don't give in to feelings of Feeling like you're being put on the outside. Let me tell you what I mean. I mentioned as I was reading the chapter that in, starting in verse 6, it, it moves forward in time. 
Now, if you read this passage last week, that, that, this might have been a little confusing to you, and I, I understand that. Verse 6, you'll notice that it mentions King Ahasuerus. Well, that's the king during the days of Esther, and is uh, several decades after the time of Zerubbabel and these other guys we've been reading about. Well, then verse 7 is another kind of, well, you know how in a movie you have flashbacks? These are flash-forwards. Uh, it flashes forward again to the king, uh, King Artaxerxes, who was during the time of Nehemiah. But the whole thing that the author is doing in chapter 4, he's, he's at this one point in time talking about the rebuilding of the temple, and he, and he mentions this resistance that the people encountered, and, he, and then he, he flashes forward, obviously he's writing after the fact, to, to say, look, this is a pattern throughout the history of the exiles. They had to deal with this resistance. It was... It was normal. And what we have with this letter that uh, comes from these guys, from, from verse uh, 7 down to verse 16, this letter, the theme of it is the Samaritans trying to marginalize the Jews, to make them seem like they're, they're uh, insignificant, unimportant And, of course, it's fascinating to whoever wrote this book, whether it's Ezra or someone else, you know, they're holding in their hands these government records. They're in the government archives. That's how they have this letter. You know, even just the details indicate they're trying to be good historians, which just points to the trustworthiness of God's word. That's why I bring that point up. But they they record this letter. And just listen listen to the exaggeration that the Samaritans write here. First, they exaggerate their own importance. Look at verse 10, um, where they mention uh, the, the, that they represent the rest of the peoples. So even though these couple of guys are riding uh, in the region of Palestine, they, they basically say, hey, we speak for everyone west of the Euphrates, a vast territory. They're exaggerating their own importance. Like, listen, we've done some polling. We've been talking to every person in the you know, hundreds of square miles. And we, we've got something to share with you. You know, they're exaggerating their importance. Which, I mean, don't, don't, don't we see that in the world around us? Don't we see people exaggerating? You know, especially as there's pressure on you to submit to their worldview. I'll say more about that in a minute. The second thing they exaggerate is they exaggerate the actual truth about the Jews themselves. So in verse 12, look look how it describes them. They are rebuilding that rebellious and evil city. You probably noticed the way I I read the letter. I was trying to kind of capture their sort of groveling before the king. Oh, mighty king, this city is so rebellious. Uh, You see it in verse 13 where they say, um, you know, they, they, they indicate that, look, they're, they're not going to, if you let them rebuild the city, they're not going to pay tribute. They're not going to pay taxes. The royal revenue will suffer if you let them rebuild this city. These Samaritans are, are trying to get the king to think that the Jews are kind of out of step with the rest of the region. Look, king, we all think this way. Everybody is all about you and the glory of Persia, but not the Jews. They're, they're, 
They're not going to, I mean, this is a, an allegation that you can't prove. They say, they're not going to pay taxes. Why? You don't know that. They're trying to show that the Jews are out of step with Persia. Or you might say, in modern parlance, uh, these Jews were on the wrong side of history. They want them to feel marginalized by exaggerating the truth about the Jews. And then there's one last bit of exaggeration where they exaggerate their own loyalty, the Samaritans, their own loyalty to the king. In verse 14, they say, we have taken an oath of loyalty to the king. It's not right for us to witness his dishonor. Uh, verse 16, they, they, they warn, you will not have any possession west of the Euphrates. Again, this is hundreds of square miles. And Jerusalem is just this tiny blip on that map. They're, just, they're blowing this out of proportion. But the goal is to try to make it seem like, again, that the Jews are out of step. That they are dangerous to the kingdom of Persia, the empire of Persia. And that's, that's the point they try to get the king to see. And look, we, we can relate to that. Can, can you relate to that? I mean, Christians feel marginalized and trivialized all the time. Now, maybe you can remember a day in this country where it didn't feel like that. And you know, praise God that there, there was a point in uh, recent history where people felt that way. But look, the, if you're beginning to feel marginalized today at this point in history, well, we're just kind of joining with our brothers and sisters around the world who've been experiencing this for a long time. Now look, I'm not going to say that the blessing of a, a, a society with high morals, uh, that's a good thing. Uh, I've, having lived in a, a region of the country where the blessing of Christian morals and values was long gone. New England is, is long, has not had that in a long time. And I know that here in, in the South, the blessings of Christian morals have been around for a while, but maybe you're looking around seeing them fading. And that makes you feel trivialized. It makes you feel on the margins. But, but look, not only have our brothers and sisters experienced that, but even our brothers and sisters in our own society have experienced that. If you have an African-American brother or sister in Christ who's a friend of yours, I mean, they've been experiencing that for pretty much all of the history that they've lived in this country. Not to mention that all the way back to the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy, he says, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, marginalized, isolated. And of course, he was just echoing his Savior, the Lord Jesus, who said uh, that if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. It's Actually, for a Christian, it's actually normal and healthy to feel marginalized by the culture around you. Because if you are seeking the glory of Christ, just, just know that I don't care, I don't care who you talk to, if, if it's, if, whoever it is, if they're not seeking the glory of Christ, then they're going to feel different from you. And especially as you seek more and more to honor Christ and put faithfulness to Him above faithfulness to anything else. The more you do that, the more you will feel marginalized, isolated, trivialized. And of course, we're just following in our Savior's footsteps when we do that. 
I mean, look at him hanging on the cross. Does he, is he winning a popularity contest as he's hanging there bleeding? No, who's there? Practically no one. I mean, his mom is there, but that's his mom. Of course, she's going to be there. Where does disciples go? Jesus has gone there first. Jesus has been marginalized. And he did that for us. Out of his great love for us, he suffered marginalization. So that we could be saved from our sins. And then as we find ourselves isolated from the society around us, we would have a confidence and a hope that we can walk through it. Because he's gone through it first. Now, it doesn't mean that we retreat. I'm not saying that we should retreat from the people who are marginalizing us. I think the New Testament is clear. We continue to seek to love them and and call them to repent and to trust in Christ. Not to try to win their approval. Not to try to win their, um, their praise. But to win their soul to Christ. It's normal for us to feel marginalized. And you know what? That's what the church is so helpful for. We can come together as the church and feel marginalized together. (laughs) But then discover that we have a shared Savior. We have a shared hope in Christ. And you know, it will help keep us salty too. That's why you come to the church's gathering. Not because it earns you favor with God, but because it helps you to persevere and to keep trusting the Lord, even in the face of marginalization. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling, always abounding in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Quickly, one final truth, one more thing we must not give into. We must not give into a godless worldview. A godless worldview. This, this comes in Artaxerxes' reply. Uh, he says in verse 21, the first part of it, he says, Issue an order for these men to stop. He tells the Samaritans back in Palestine to tell them to stop building the city. Boy, Artaxerxes thinks he has a lot of power, doesn't he? And in fact, that's what happens. The, in verse 23 tells us that the Samaritans, they go forcibly with arms, with weapons. They stop them from building. And then verse 24 tells us that the construction of the temple... Uh, actually, verse 24 then goes back in time again and says the construction of the temple stopped. The point is, the, the Samaritans and King Artaxerxes, they think that there's this great authority and power in the hands of that king. In fact, they think it's the highest authority on earth. But that is a godless worldview. That is a false worldview. The reality is, Psalm 2 tells us, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. He laughs at the kings of the earth that think they are in charge. God holds them in derision. He laughs. And that's that's how we have to approach 
our day-to-day lives as we seek to grow in grace and knowledge. Recognizing, according to Ephesians 1.11, that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. God is not submissive to King Artaxerxes. And we're going to see in future chapters that even though the work stopped then, that God continued to work among His people. He does not submit to the will of some little king in Persia. His throne is in heaven. The earth is his mere footstool. This is my father's world. Now the challenge is, the evil in this world feels so real. It is real. It doesn't just feel real. It is real. And it makes it feel like this truth about God, that God is sovereign, that God is in control. It makes that feel untrue but our feelings are not a reliable guide for truth God's word is a reliable the reliable guide for truth even in the face of this evil the opposition that comes God's power is ultimate God's lordship is ultimate and he proved it especially at the cross Colossians 2 tells us that the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ and that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him, in Christ. At the cross, Christ defeated the power of Satan and hell and death and all evil. Amen. It was decisive. The war, the war has been won by Christ. But we know from our experience that we have battles still. But that's exactly how we should think of them. The war, the victory, it's it's already been won. Christ has won. He's defeated every sin. He's defeated every evil power. But those evil powers are still at work. They think they've got a chance. And so they resist us. They attack us. They wage war not knowing that their little skirmishes that they're seeking to win are useless. Because Christ has defeated every sin. Christ is victorious. And friends, that is how we must look at all the opposition that we faced, all the resistance that we face, humbly look to the cross and see that there the Lamb of God hangs in victory. He was raised from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God. He has crushed the head of that great and ancient serpent, serpent, the devil. He's on his throne. He's victorious. Every resistance to growth that you face look to Christ find the victory in him let's pray Lord help us help us with the trials we face the opposition we face the feeling of isolation that we face, Lord, and help us to look to Christ who walked that 
road to Golgotha, the Via Dolorosa. He walked it alone in faithfulness and obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. But Father, you have exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. So Lord, help us with all that we face when there's a a work of God going on in our lives, in our church, Lord, help us not to lose hope, but to look to Christ who his road did not end at the cross, but it went through the cross to the victory of the resurrection. Give us great hope this morning. Help us to rest in the rock of ages, the everlasting rock. The Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.